This morning is Sunday, uh, January 16th, and uh, our message this morning is going to be on brotherhood, the fraternal order of believers. Y'all ever been on a college campus, at least visiting, <laughs> during uh, Pledge Week? You ever seen that? I remember a brief time period in my life where I was on a college campus and everybody was Greek week and everybody was running out trying to get pledges and all of those things and they were literally recruiting for membership, I guess. I don't know what's, what's the best way to say that. And I had this profound sense at that time in my life, I'm already a member of a fraternity. You know, I, I really am not looking for camaraderie from you guys. I have a family that is the church. Uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel. And we're going to do some things a little differently than I had planned this morning just because I feel like the Lord's pulling me in a little different direction. It's going to be in 1 Samuel 20. This is on page 323 in the Thompson Chain. This morning's message is going to be on brotherhood, the fraternal order of believers. That'd be a good bumper sticker, wouldn't it? You know, you, you have the fraternal order of the police, all of those bumper stickers people put to get out of tickets. Yeah. You know, fraternal order of believers. Uh, y'all in First Samuel 20? Mm-hmm. Starting in verse uh, 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had... And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Y'all are familiar that the Bible says that all of the law, all of the prophets is summed up in the phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Almost every problem that we face in the kingdom that has to do with brother and sister relationships and when I say brother and sister, I mean in the kingdom. You can, your wife is your sister in the, in the kingdom. has to do with when we do not love someone else in the same way that we love ourselves. Or when we don't love ourselves like Jesus wants us to. But when something's wrong with that relationship. David and Jonathan are two people that are phenomenal in the Bible. I mean, it's a beautiful uh, shadow and type of Jesus in the church. It's a beautiful shadow and type of many, many things. Go so far one time as to say that David's love for Jonathan was greater than that of the kind of love that a man has for a woman. And you can, people have tried to twist that into all kind of weird things. What it amounts to is that it came from the throne of God. It was a godlike love. When you have that for your brothers and sisters, you sincerely want the best for them. That will motivate you to do things in their best interest even at your detriment. And that is Christ-like behavior. Isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, turn with me from 1 Samuel 20 back to 1 Samuel 18. I want to get a couple of these points in here about brotherly love, and then we're going to look at a couple things. And 1 Samuel 18 says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. They became one in spirit. I spent some time with some brothers this weekend, and one of them I had not laid eyes on uh, 
several years. But we are one in spirit. Immediately we pick up right where we left off. Uh, I just mentioned these things. We were going to get to the Word. Okay, Turn with me to the right now. Go to 2 Kings 2. I'm sorry, that's not to the... Yeah, it is to the right. In 2 Kings 2, remember we are loving as ourselves and we are one in spirit. And now in 2 Kings 2, look at these two brothers. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elijah said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The Lord will cause you to come into relationships with people. And this relationship is weird at first. It feels strange. You're accustomed to the fact that you would have a blood brother who is supposed to stick with you through thick and thin. You would have an uncle or an aunt that is supposed to be there, supposed to care for you, supposed to love you. In the kingdom, though, what happens is you enter into a blood relationship with millions of believers worldwide. And it's not based on your genealogy. It's based on your love for a king that shed his blood for you. And the model for the relationship is like David and Jonathan. You're instantly one in spirit because you have the same spirit in you. You have the same goals. You have the same things that motivate you. You instantly love them, or I say instantly, you should work towards loving them in the same way that you want to be loved, the same way that you love yourself, and you should be willing to travel with them wherever the road takes them. Now, I say this because this will create mercy for you when you don't see a brother do well. This will create mercy when somebody needs mercy. Now, with all that in mind, turn to 1 Samuel 14. We're going to get into our message. Brotherly love here. In 1 Samuel 13, which I'm not reading, you'll see a title. It's above the 16th verse, and it says, Israel was without weapons. <laughs> you ever felt disadvantaged in your struggles? If I just had more money, Lord, if I just had more money, this would work better. Anybody ever thought that? You know, I remember being in a church where all of the leadership had money in the millions of dollars. All of the serfdom out in the uh, pews had not money in the tens of thousands of dollars, you know. And I remember thinking, if I just had more to work with, how much more I could do? Is that a foreign thought to anybody? But y'all can't relate to it as far as money. Y'all are thinking about it some other way, right? That's everybody. Well, Israel is in a place where they are in conflict with the Philistines. The same way that you are in conflict with the enemy all of the time. But there's a problem. Because of their conflict with the Philistines and a time in Israel's history, there were no blacksmiths in Israel. The Philistines had picked them off, had not allowed anybody to learn the trade of making very strong swords. I'm not a metallurgist. I, my metals may be wrong here. But Israel had a sword. Their swords, for the most part, were made of a metal that was somewhat soft, like copper. So that it was good for a lot of things, but when it met an iron sword, or some, something hard, maybe it wasn't iron, but whatever the Philistines had, they would break. And that was a real problem. This is something you can go back in history and you can see in Israel. We're at a time period where God deliberately disadvantaged Israel. 
so that they could be sitting there thinking, I can't do what God wants me to do. I mean, look at this. Look at my life. I don't even have a blacksmith to give me a sword so that I can go to war. I mean, Lord, if you would just give me more, if you would just supply my need more, then I could do something for you. Now, that didn't ring home with anybody, though. No, nobody's ever thought anything like that, I'm sure. That's where Israel is. Pick up in 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outposts on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, I forgot to tell you something. Saul's been anointed as king over Israel. At this time, Saul, the guy who is a head taller than everybody else, a mighty warrior from the tribe of Benjamin, somebody that all the people could look up to. We've always liked war heroes as our leaders. I mean, that's, that's no mistake that people run on those platforms. <coughs> Israel elected a war, heater, a war leader as their king. A, a physical specimen. But the problem is, he cared more about what people thought than what God thought. And his heart had already been revealed. He's already screwed up. And because of that, all Israel lacks confidence. They're all in a place where they're beat down and they're used to failure. The Bible's going to go so far as to say they're hiding in holes in the ground. Okay, so we're in a place where the Philistines are there. They're supposed to be in battle with the Philistines. But the king, the leader of Israel, has caused Israel to fail and lack confidence. And furthermore, Israel looks around. They don't even have a decent sword because there's no blacksmith. Okay, not a pretty picture, right? Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Why does Jonathan have the idea we'll go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side? God had already told Israel many times, I want you to clear out this whole land. I want you to go in and root out all of the inhabitants. So the idea is godly. Why can't he tell his father then? Because his father cared more about what men thought than what God thought. Just say this to make this point as we go. There are times in your life where you look around and you don't see any encouragement on the horizon. You feel disadvantaged. You've become used to defeat. And your natural inclination would be normally to run to those that have been in this longer than you, relatives, whoever it is, and say, hey, could you help me? And maybe even could you loan me a sword? You're supposed to have one. Could you loan me some money? Could you loan me whatever? Could you help me? Could you do something about my circumstances? Something compelled him to not even talk to his dad but to go. So, verse 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. That's a whole other message that we won't do. But with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Ephod was a priestly garment, by the way. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahatub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozus and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other towards Gibeah in the south. Anybody have the Jewish Bible in here? Bozus and Sina. What does it say? Um, that's in verse 4. Five. Four. 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 Uh, Bozus is and Sinch. It doesn't translate it in English for you? 
I thought it translated. Let me translate it for you. Bozes is shining glory. Sina is thorn bush. Sin. Jonathan got the idea. Wow. God has called us into confrontation with the Philistines. We know this. I look around and all I see is defeat. All I see is despair. There is no hope on the horizon. And yet God's called me to do it. I'm not going to consult with Dad. I'm not going to go ask for provisions. I need one brother who will stand with me. Come, let's go. And when he sets out to look, he looks into a valley. And on his right and on his left, he sees suffering and he sees glory. And he has to pass through this to achieve what God's called him to do. You begin to see a picture here? If you're going to do what God has called you to do, you will pass through times in your life that are glorious. You feel like they're mountaintop experiences and you are God's man of power for the hour. But you will also pass through times that are suffering and it is all part of going to achieve what God has called you to achieve. Now we'll get into the meat here. On each side of the path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozus and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south towards Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan was one man in Israel who had the right attitude. We know in general that God has called us to be at warfare here. I look around, I see everybody hiding. We're not equipped for it. There's an excuse on every turn, and they're good excuses. If we go to war, we'll lose. We don't have the right swords. We don't have blacksmiths to make swords. We are not equipped for this. Nevertheless, God said, do it. So Jonathan sneaks off. He can't even tell his father. He sneaks off and he finds one guy and says, hey, you thinking what I'm thinking? I bet we can do what God called us to do. And listen to how this kid replies. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. That is a real key verse. When you can find in your life people that will join in your vision, heart and soul, you have a very special thing. This is how it should be in the kingdom for all believers. But the reality is we are a segmented group. We are sectarian. We look for every reason not to like other believers. Their skirts are too short. Their hair is too long. Their faces are too covered with makeup, not covered. They baptize this way, don't baptize. We look for every reason to divide. But when you can find somebody, and get this, this was not a vision from heaven that says, Jonathan, go. And here I will show you that you're supposed to do this with all of these wonders. And here are fleeces and all of these things. Jonathan sets out and says, Perhaps God will do this. Boy, is that faith. It gets better than that though. He found one guy in all Israel that was willing to go with him. He says, perhaps, look, God can save us whether by many or by few. His faith rose above his circumstances. By many or by few, God is with us, was his thought. Now verse 8. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Picture this. 
There's two guys. There are at least three garrisons of Philistines above them. Bobby, you know, I was thinking you and I might go over there and we might just whip the whole lot of them. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Well, how are we going to know if it's God? Well, let's stand here and if they ignore us and, you know, uh, if, no, if they come on down to us and they want to fight, then, then uh, we'll know that it's not God. But if they don't say anything except to kind of pick on us and laugh at us, we'll know God's given them into our hands. Boy, is that a lopsided fleece? I mean, what would you have done in this scenario? If the Lord wants to give them into our hands, then, you know, He'll make them all tuck tail and run. He'll make them do something. Something that would set the course of action in your favor. Jonathan's faith was such that he said, <laughs> if they laugh at us, if they make fun of us, if they kind of jeer us and say, come on up here, we'll know God's going to let us whip them all. You hear that? He was ready to succeed. He sets out with the idea, perhaps God will do it. He can do it with many or few. Come on, let's go see if He'll do it. And then God would have had to dissuade him from getting him to do it. This, do you all know who Reinhard Bunker is? A German evangelist? Now, I don't follow the big ministries. Everybody knows that. But this guy's preaching to the largest crowds in the world and a really simple message. But the one thing that touches me has nothing to do with the messages that he preaches to the crowds. When asked, you know, what motivates you? How do you know you're supposed to do that? He says, you the church, you pray for the will of God and I will run you over from behind because I am going to do the will of God. We sometimes break down and we don't know what the Lord wants us to do. We, if we just knew, if He would just show us, and He has shown us so much that we're not faithful to. Right here at this time in Israel's life, they already know God's will is that they defeat the Philistines. But they are hiding in holes and we're going to find out half of them have even, even gone over to the Philistine side to enjoy the pleasures of the world. Maybe they liked the swords the Philistine made. I don't know what it was, but something drew them over. But this guy finds one guy, verse 7, one guy who says, Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. That could be intimidating, couldn't it? So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. How do we know? What is it that made you sure that you could win? Why do you have such faith for what you do? Well, they challenged me. They challenged me and that's like challenging God. There's two of us, whether many or few. Oh, we're going to whip them all now. They're standing against God. This is no different than David who walks out a few chapters later and he goes, what's the problem here? Why is this guy taunting Israel for 40 days? Goliath's out there nine feet tall. And he's, oh no, he didn't, he's not defying us. He's defying the armies of the living God. And he runs out and cuts off this giant's head after hitting him in the head with a stone. To David, it was a real simple matter. No, it's not my reputation on the line. It's God's. Jonathan had the same heart. They cared more about God's will than their own skin. Boy, if we could find brothers and sisters that cared more about God's will being done in their life 
than their own sin. And then, if once you're like-minded, you're in one spirit, you could find somebody that said, hey, I'm with you heart and soul. What could we not accomplish for God? You know, in Elijah's time, we read about Elijah not long ago. One guy stood and changed the course of a whole nation. I think, why one? He probably couldn't find somebody else who would stand with him. And here you are in a fellowship. There are people on your left and your right. We've pledged our lives for each other. We will stand with each other. I mean, that is what a church is. Church is not a building. It's not stained glass. It's not a steeple. It's somebody who says, here, take my arm. You're tired and I will help you in this. Watch what happens next here. This is so important. This is really, we love this in idea. We love this in concept, but here's where it breaks down in practice. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, the Philistine said, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we will teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. Get this. One climbs up first. The other has to go behind. Somebody had to die to self to decide who was going up first. You know, that could be a fight right there in the church. You know? Well, I wanted to do that. No, I wanted to do that. You know, you're, you're supposed to be ministering to the children with a puppet show and you're going to fight over who has the lead role in the puppet show. You know, I've seen <laughs> sillier things. I got thrown out of a Lutheran school for almost a year because I got in a fight in a puppet show. Four kids in ministry. Shining example of what a Christian ought to be, right? First, one had to submit to the other and follow behind him. That didn't make him lesser. That was just his role. Then, Jonathan, did he go kill a Philistine? Did it say that? It says, they fell before Jonathan and the armor bearer who was behind him killed them. We need to learn to work in tandem as Christians. We need to learn how to lock arms with one another and what you can't kill but you knock down, I will kill. And what I can't kill but knock down, you kill. See, there are times as Christians, the best you can do is resist the temptation. You can't conquer it. It's there, it's struggling, and you're fighting it, but your brother can stand beside you and help you stick the sword in it. But you have to learn to work together as a team. What do we do, though, when you find out somebody's not been able to kill the enemy, not been able to overcome it? Did you hear about Sister So-and-so? She stepped out in faith and fell flat on her face. I mean, those are the stories that Christians said. So-and-so tried to start a ministry and it blew up on him. You know, I knew that wasn't going to work. You know? I knew those two shouldn't get married. I mean, they're already having problems. And do you see the kids they're raising? What happened to the idea of, I'm with you, heart and soul. Whatever you have in your mind to do, I will do with you. We need to look in, around us and see a brother that is struggling and grab him by the arm and say, come on, buddy, we can do this together. You hit him high, I will hit him low, and we will win. It's too big for you, it's too big for me, but together it can be accomplished. Now, we're talking about brothers, Right? Those of you that are married, you got a beautiful thing. You have a beautiful thing. God already put you in a pair of two. He said, well, it's not working that way yet. That's all right. You be the example. You lead and the other will follow. God will get it right. You've got to give it a chance. 
This is why the family unit is so important. It's why Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. If one falls down, there's somebody there to pick him up. That doesn't seem like profound wisdom, does it? But it really is. He said, well, I'm single. I don't have a spouse. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we're there for. So, well, I didn't want to interrupt family time. What are you talking about? You are my family. You know? If, if nothing else, that ought to be clear in everybody's lives. I place, and this is not me, this is the body of... Uh, the Lord told me not to be shy one time about using myself as an example. So I'm trying to get out... I'm trying to be able to do that. It's not just a unique feature within the Stevens household that we place a higher value on the blood of Christ being our binding relationship than the blood that flows through our natural veins. You know, that's not a unique feat. That is the body of Christ. That's what it's supposed to be. That doesn't mean you discard your family. Your family can come into the body of Christ. But this is how we form a unit. This is how we grow as a fellowship together. There should be not a thought in your mind of, man, I really need help, but I hate to ask Diana. I mean, she'd have to travel so far. I mean, that ought, it ought to be, I know she would want to help me, and I'm going to suck up my pride and ask, because we're supposed to work in tandem. This needs to be the attitude that's developed in the church. This kind of attitude. And I, why, why are we teaching on it? It's not because we're failing in it, but this is how you grow as a church. And in a natural sense, people want to be a part of something that feels bigger than them. They want to be a part of something where they have a place. I'm not trying to create places. I'm telling you how the kingdom works. The church that we were a part of. We can rave about, oh, wonderful teaching, wonderful worship, and all of that is true. Wonderful men of God, and all of that's true. You know what makes a church strong? When people will lock arms together and accomplish things together. When they'll think more about their brother succeeding than whatever joy you might get from, did you see how badly he fell on his face? You know, the world watches a car wreck and laughs. They watch something... We love to watch blooper films. I watched one the other night at the turn of the year. A guy's running for a baseball. Hits him right on the head. And I laughed. You know, I thought, man, that is funny. And I sat and thought about it for a minute. You know who that's not funny for? The guy that got hit on the head with the baseball. How would you like to have that happen in front of 100,000 people or a worldwide audience? In the body of Christ, we are too worldly sometimes in our relationships with each other. We need to place a higher emphasis on the, the thing that our brother needs. And you know what? When you do that, two of you all of a sudden can change the course of a nation. Watch what happens here. So Jonathan said to the armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet and his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In the first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Now, I was tempted to stop here. But as I thought about it, I said, you know what? There's something that you need to know. You know what you need to know about this? 20 men is insignificant. 20 men. I mean, what kind of difference is that? Two killed 20, that's wonderful. But it's 20 men and there is an entire army over here. What difference does that make? But don't forget, there were... Israelites hiding in holes watching this. The most unique, amazing thing happens when people really start to live the gospel. Christians like ferrets start to stick their head out of the holes that they've been hiding in, going, wow, 
It can be done. I saw those two brothers ascend that mountain and they are getting victory. Maybe I can do it. And when you lead in faith by example, it inspires faith in other people. And one goes, oh man, Jonathan couldn't even kill that guy. Oh, look, the armor bearer helped him do it. It's working. And they see the struggle, but they see it working. And watch what happens. Then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and the field and those in the outpost and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. There's only been 20 casualties. But two men moving in faith, working as one unit, are turning the tide of a whole army because God was with them. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul at this point didn't even know that somebody had gone out. He just saw the change in the army. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring me the ark. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines had gone up with them to their camp and went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Get this. Two men set out and say, perhaps God's Word is true. Perhaps when he said this, he actually meant it. And one says, you know, you might be right. Let's go do everything you have in mind to do. I'm with you, heart and soul. So the two of them set out and they say, hey, look, man, if they are not intimidated by the two of us, then that'll be a sign. God will, God will give them all to us. How ridiculous is that to start with? So then they set up the hill and when one knocks one down, the other kills him. And the most amazing thing has happened. God has something that has happened in the natural that He can work with. See, everybody standing back, praying from the distance, refusing to act, was not moving anything. The angels were there. They were ready. They were ready to move, ready to see God's will done. But something natural had to happen so that God could go beyond it and do something supernatural. Sometimes you think, God, I don't have very much that I can do. I can't change this situation. I don't have the sword. I don't have the support of my Father. I don't have anybody who will stand with me save one. But God is just looking for a spark that He can fan into some kind of flame and move the earth. He says that He shook the ground because God was with Him. And then the most amazing thing happens. Even the traitors even the Benedict Arnolds, even those that had previously gone over to the Philistine side started to look up and say, God is with Israel. It can be done and I'm going to do it. And what you find is they all go out and march on the Philistines and win. When people see faith, they recognize it when it's real faith. When they see people really loving one another, placing one's needs above the others, they recognize it and are drawn to it. And when you see somebody succeed, you ought to not think, well, that's them. They're a special case. Oh, I could never have a life like that. Oh, I could never. Oh, I could, I could, I could never. Instead, you ought to be thinking, it can be done. It can be done. I see it being done. It can be done. I will do it. 
That's the heart of a Christian. The heart of a Christian is one that says, I can do it because God is with me. Let's go, I tell you what, let's go try this. Perhaps God will bless it. That needs to be your heart. Now, God is very good at unscrambling broken situations. You can have a fouled up relationship with your spouse and He can fix it. You can have just about ruined your children and He can rehabilitate them. You can have upset all of the Christian people you know, turned your backs on them and walked away and God can change their hearts and make them favorably inclined towards you. You almost cannot get so far away that God can't help you. You might get so far away that He won't. But you can't get so far away that He can't help you. Paul and Barnabas had a little disagreement. And uh, you might be surprised that that happens among godly men, but it, I can tell you if you ever attend any pastor's meetings with any frequency, you find out that pastors are just like everybody else. They have their problems. In Acts 15, we've just had a problem. And uh, this is on page 1229, by the way. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. And Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp disagreement over how they're going to staff their ministry team that they have to go their separate ways. And I'm, I would, don't know, but I would imagine if you have a sharp disagreement and it gets recorded in the Bible, it was a pretty sharp disagreement. You know, I doubt that these two were writing you know, aggressive letters to one another. You know, I, I suspect they fought just like some people fight today. But look, God didn't give up on either one of them. He didn't give up on even the guy they were fighting about. He wrote a gospel. Instead, what you see happen is God say, Wow, my ministry team here that I've worked to invest in is going different directions. I've got to restaff. I, have, I want my will accomplished. These people love me and I'm going to work within their capabilities. And watch what happens in Acts 16. He came to Derby and then Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and grew daily in numbers. Now, John Mark is no longer with Paul. Barnabas is no longer with Paul. And Paul sets out. And the first thing God does is add to him a young man named Timothy. Now, what's special about that? Well, his mother was a Jew. And his father was a Greek. What was Paul? Paul was a Jew who ministered first to Jews and then to Greeks. Greek is a synonym for Gentiles because the world was Greek before it was Roman. And that's how they thought of it. This kid had been uniquely prepared. God had had Paul. He had had this task in mind. He had been raised in an environment that would suit him for what he needed. When you look to your right and your left and you say, well, that's just the way that Mandy is. That's just the way that Bobby is. That's just the way that Stephen and Darnell are. You are the way that you are because you were raised in an environment that would uniquely suit you to accomplish something. Some of the tools that used to shape you were good. Some of them were not so good, but it is still God's shaping. Let's, in the body of Christ, quit worrying about whether our daddies did good things to us when we were kids, or our mamas showed us enough love, 
or whether our uncles were there for us. Let's put away the spilt milk and start thinking about the fact that God uses everything to prepare you for a good thing. I'm sure that Timothy could have sat around and whined that his daddy was a Greek and not a believer. You know? That it was his mama who had to carry the spiritual load and how hard it was and maybe that his daddy beat him. I don't know. But instead, this was a kid who was uniquely prepared for what God had called him to do and he probably didn't realize it at the time. But we can look in the rearview mirror of Bible history here and see that he was uniquely prepared for it. And what else do you know about Timothy's heart? Was circumcision something that was necessary for Christians? No. Paul goes so far sometimes as to say, if you allow that to be done, if you do that, you cut yourself off from Christ. And these people who are trying to throw you into confusion and make you do this so they can brag about your flesh, I wish they would just cut their whole thing off. Paul says that in the Scripture. He calls them dogs, mutilators of the flesh. So why then is Paul circumcising Timothy? Well, he tells you why. He thought it was necessary for the work that they had to do. So what does that tell you about Timothy? It didn't have to be done. It was not something that God required. But it was something that he was willing to do for other people's benefit. This kid had the kind of heart that all Christians are supposed to have. I will bleed that someone else may benefit. Does that sound like Jesus to you? I'm telling you right now, this is not a teaching I would real readily accept. <laughs> you know, Eric got good news and bad news. I want you to go to Sugarland. Bad news is gee, we're going to cut you in a place you don't want to be cut. You know, I mean, come on. How many of you would sign up for that? If you don't think that Timothy had a sordid background, well, his mom was a Jew, his grandmother was a believer. Why? Why, what was so bad? Then why wasn't he circumcised? All Jews had to be circumcised. Why wasn't he circumcised? His mother gave up the Jewish part. Apparently, Mama and Daddy didn't see eye to eye all the time. Maybe his home life was not just like the Cleavers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the Word in the province of Asia. Having been kept by who? The Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at a scripture in Jeremiah where God said, don't, don't pray for them. Here, this week, we read, no, don't go preach to them. So what is the deal with God? He has a time and season for everything. And it's necessary that we follow His leading. You find out that God has many tools in His tool belt. And one is that He allows circumstances to seemingly affect you negatively that you might benefit in the long run. Anybody, don't raise your hands. You just think here. Anybody in here ever had a car go away? Somebody come and get it in the middle of the night? Ever had to declare bankruptcy? You ever had a creditor knock on your door? You think, God, that was the worst experience of my life. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. But now I can look and go, wow, the lesson that taught me was profound. It was wonderful. I now am a better person for it. I wouldn't sign up to go do it again. But I can see that God used that to change my direction. We need to begin to look at every circumstance in our life as an opportunity for God to change our direction. You remember when Paul was called? What did God tell him? Saul, Saul, how long will you kick against the goads? God had been sending things in his life trying to turn him. If I want Judah to go this way and he won't listen, 
I can poke him on the side. He'll, you move away from whatever is poking you. That's natural. God had put things in his life to change his direction and he wasn't listening, so he showed up in person to talk to him about it. The things in our lives are sometimes just to direct us in a different way. Sometimes to give you experience in overcoming trials. Sometimes to get you to leave one place because there's a famine and go to another. He might do that and change your employers because it's something that He wants to do for you. But it could seem horrible and negative and you could be so scared about it and it could be very hard. And you can live in fear of that and never be obedient. Or you can embrace whatever's coming your way and see it as an opportunity to do something good. They're jeering at me up there on that hill. They're making fun of me. Must mean God's going to give them into my hands. I mean, that's how we need to look at our problems. Not with despair. Not with You cannot receive from God hunched over, you know, upset, down all of the time. You can't. It doesn't work that way. It's like trying to get electricity without plugging something into the socket. It doesn't work. Well, Matthew would argue with me. It can work that way. I'm going to leave all the electrical examples to you, Matthew. So the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching the providence of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. <laughs> so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over here, help us. Come, come to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision... We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want you to notice something. They went and they tried one thing. Perhaps God will do it here. Nope, doesn't want to. Perhaps God will do it over here. Nope, doesn't want to. Now, what could the church in Jerusalem be doing? <laughs> Paul and Silas and some kid we never heard of named Timothy. They keep trying, but everywhere they go, they fail. You know, we knew they should have stuck with us. We're the only ones with the truth. We're the only ones that know how to do this. If they had just done what we told them to do. But the church in Jerusalem didn't do that because they were real Christians. Everybody stood back to watch to see. They ran one way and Jesus prevented them. Said no. They ran another way. Jesus prevented them. Said no. And then they found the right way. Now, I say they. Paul is the one that got the vision. But what does it say? Paul saw a vision and we concluded God had called us to go and preach the gospel to them. When you're with somebody heart and soul, when you begin, it doesn't matter that God didn't tell you that Stephen and Darnell were supposed to buy a house. God told Stephen and you can join with him in that vision and support it. And when they're building the house and about halfway through all the contractors walk off and Stephen uh, has lost his job and is having to look, you don't stand back and go, I knew that wasn't God. And what an idiot. I mean, can you believe what he did? I'm just telling you so we know how to pray. Christians do that stuff though. And we can't. What should you do? Brother, I know where you can go work. Let me come help you. We can complete this project and kill the contractors. Let's find a way to get her done. <laughs> you find a way. And you know what? What happens when you do that is God causes success and he's, what if Stephen did make a mistake? Did you, have you never? I mean, come on. All of y'all are the Pope. You've never made a mistake. You speak with perfect authority. I mean, that is equal to that of the Scripture or above. You know we don't. So why do we have no mercy when somebody else seems to be flopping? And why do we assume that every negative thing that happens is them flopping? 
Oh, Brad said he was going to Sugarland, but he didn't find a job the first week he got there, so it must not have been God. Boy, we feel so good about ourselves too because we hear from God so perfectly and nobody else does. We are always right and everybody else is wrong. They concluded after hearing what Paul said that God had called all of them to go. God will add people to you that will join your vision. I'm telling you right now, if you hear me express the vision of the church, which is not, I mean, it's not hidden. It's that God will change our lives. Is that He'll knock your square edges off so that you fit into the round holes He wants you to. It's that He's transforming. If that's abrasive to you to the point where you think, you know what? I don't believe this is God's will that I be here. That's fine. Get out. I want all of the people here that God wants. I want the kind of people to go, wow, that's the vision. God has called us to do it. Not those that are sitting back waiting for Eric to do it. Not those that say, wow, Eric and Matt are doing a great job there, but we're going to hide in the holes. We're looking for what God's looking for. Everybody that can unite and say, I believe that's God. I'm going to work at that. I'm going to help my brothers and sisters around me work at it. You know, there's always in every social setting, as when my father had a ranch, you could even see it in the animals. It's the weirdest thing. There are always one or two that it's easy for the others to pick on. You can do it with chickens. You can do it with goats. You can. You remember Slick Goat? We put Slick Goat. Y'all don't know who Slick Goat is. I'm talking about him. He's a, my father and I had this goat, and his hair was a little different than the others, and he really was a pet. And if you put him with the other goats, they butted him to death. I mean, the, he's screaming out there for help. You know, hey, hey, I, I'm, I'm your buddy. You know, come get me out of this trailer. They're killing me. You know, churches are the same way. It gets clickish. Oh, it's easy for me to fellowship with Les. He and I, you know, we're like that. It's harder for me to fellowship with Judah, though. I mean, I'm teething, baby. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? We can't be that way. We've got to all of us be looking around saying, ooh, let's not let anybody straggle, pull everybody tighter into the circle. We're going on together or we're not going on. We're going on together or we're not going on. Okay, so all of them are going. Well, what, Paul saw a man of... A... Man of Macedonia, right? He, he didn't see a woman. He saw a man of Macedonia. Well, there's a little problem with that. Paul gets to Macedonia and he's preaching and spending time with everybody. And a couple of women get saved. Well, we got no man getting saved. Not anywhere. And that's Lydia, the dyer of purple cloth, which that's a whole other message in itself, are the next few verses. We're going to pick up in 16 though. Paul's in Macedonia. Lydia, some women are getting saved. Some neat things are happening. But no man. In verse 16, we're in Macedonia. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us. Now what does that tell you? Us. Not just Paul. Who wrote this book? So Luke's there. Paul's there. Luke's there. Who else is there? Silas, who set out from Jerusalem with him. And who else? Timothy. Shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Did I misread something? This is a slave girl who predicts the future by way of a demon. And what is she saying? Hey, Just because some guy's on TV telling you, reading the Word to you, does not at all mean that he's godly. You need to know somebody. You need to examine their lives before 
you can throw your lot in with their vision. Okay? I'm not, I'm not saying you can't do that by radio, by TV, by any other way. But just because people say the right things does not mean that they are godly. I wish, it, I wish that were true. Twelve years in sales has taught me people say a lot of things. I have to be very careful. <laughs> you know? This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. We're going to close with this passage of Scripture, so you won't have to turn anywhere else, but keep your, your hand here. You set up the mountain. You said, wow, if they taunt us, if they make fun of us, if they try to intimidate us, we'll know that God's handed them over to us. And that story is great because right away they get up there and one knocks them down, the other kills them, and they win, right? Sometimes the battle is a little harder than that. Sometimes it's not instant success. Sometimes adversity lingers long enough that you begin to wonder if Jesus is in the boat with you. These guys saw, one saw a vision of a Macedonian man. They've been here for a period of months, if not years. No man has gotten saved. What would normal people begin to do? Do you really think Paul saw that? Now imagine that Paul, again it's Paul who did it, cast out the demon out of this girl that gets them thrown in jail. Paul saw a vision, that's why we're here. Paul cast out this demon. And now, look, we are being stripped and beaten. It'd be really important that you had chosen brothers wisely, wouldn't it? <laughs> Would there be a temptation for any normal person to go, you know, Paul doesn't always get it right. This one time in the tw 27th chapter of Acts hadn't happened yet, but this one time Paul said there'd be a loss of cargo and a loss of life, and, and there wasn't a loss of life. He didn't always get it right. You know, I mean, would there be a temptation to do that? But these guys were with each other heart and soul. They were supporting each other's lives despite what they saw, despite circumstances. Is it, okay for, is it okay for Matthew to support my life even if he sees that I screw up sometimes because he believes my overall life is going in a certain direction? Yeah, that's even required. Performance-oriented love and base, whether it's towards your spouse or towards your friends, never works. You know why? All of our performances are lacking. Mm -hmm. Well, I love him as long as he acts like Jesus. Well, sweetheart, you just disqualified yourself. You know? Well, I'll, I'll start serving her like Jesus when she starts acting like she's supposed to act. Mm. Well, that's a great start. Mm. You know? How about I'll die to self and esteem their needs higher than mine? Mm -hmm. And then in time we'll see what God does. Yeah. Now, that spouse is what about friendships? Are you only friends with somebody if they can do something that's useful for you? It's great to have them around during construction projects, but the rest of the time I'm not really interested in talking to them. Yeah, it's kind of boring. Yeah. I need some electrical work done. I better 
Better start eating lunch with Matthew occasionally, you know? <laughs> Boy, isn't that worldly? <laughs> Might I suggest a restaurant from the pulpit? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so, so they're stripped and beaten, right? God will often put you in situations where it looks hopeless and it looks horrible. Being stripped and beaten publicly is not, not a good thing. Okay? I mean, that's... Anybody here will say, hey, I would just love to strip down to my Fruit of Loons and have you cane me in the public square. <laughs> could, could we do that? You know? If you do like that kind of thing, then there's counseling that's available <laughs> for you. But God will put you in a situation where you are stripped, you are humiliated. You know why? What comes out of you as you are stripped and humiliated shows what is really in there. Mm-hmm. We do all kind of things to dress up our lives, to put... Whether it's our clothing, the cars we drive, we're always trying to make... I look very carefully at the things that I like and choose because I realize in some kind of way it's making a statement about me, whether I want it to or not, you know? Uh, So he allows you to be stripped and beaten so that what is in you can become evident to everyone. The problem with that is we don't like to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, mm, that's fun, They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them into an inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, this is particularly horrible. Y'all know what stocks are. Y'all seen movies, right? You know, you got your feet in these little wooden holes and your head in these wooden holes. But then they put them in the inner cell of the prison. Most of these prisons were cave and dungeon-like. In other words, wet, damp, and places where rainwater and other things that run on the ground without facilities accumulate in the lowest possible spot. They were in the inner cell in stocks. Picture this. You're naked, been beaten, you're chained in kind of a nasty place. You know, I mean, we're talking about like the LSU bathrooms after a football game. Okay? But for years and years and years, it's been that way. It doesn't get cleaned up every week. Could you grumble a little bit? You think maybe, I don't know if Paul really saw what he said. Could you want to give up on him? Could you think that if Paul did see it, God let you down? He may have been tempted to think God let you down. He does it for Eric. You know, he does it for Cassidy, but it just doesn't work that way in my life. Works for them, but not me. You ever, could you think that? wonder if these guys thought that. <clears throat> About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I tell you, that verse in itself is almost as powerful as when you read that Jesus was resurrected. You are beaten, you are naked, you are in filth, and you are chained in an uncomfortable and humiliating position. And what were they doing? Saints, until you learn to praise God in the middle of the most awful trials, you are not anywhere near maturity in Christ. I don't care what you know. I don't care what people think of you. How often you're asked to preach. How often people think that you're a great person and ask you to pray for them and look at you with some kind of reverence. Until we learn to praise God in our trials, you're showing you are immature. The biggest statement of faith you can make it's the smile that is on your face. And I know that sounds trite and it sounds so simple and it could be one of those self-help messages that 
are so prevalent on TV. I know that you could do that. But the reality is, when we cannot be joyful in the midst of tribulation, we are showing a complete absence of faith. And what is the only thing that pleases God? Faith. And then we wonder why He doesn't move. Why? What if Barnabas and Paul are chained in stocks, you know? They're chained in stocks here right next to each other in filth and naked and they're fighting and cussing at one another and yelling at each other. And, you know, I can't think of a good word to say. <laughs> Paul, I can't believe you got me in this. You know, I had a wife at home. You know, uh, my kids are never going to see me again. You know, you said you heard from God and I believed you and now I've been tricked. You know, my back hurts. <laughs> Whatever it is. You know, the devil tells people all kinds of things. In, in marriage, the devil will tell you, oh, you married the wrong one. Mm. They're never going to make it. They're never going to come around. That is a lie. God knew the situation that you were in and what God puts together. Now, here's it. A marriage coming in is what God put together. No man should tear asunder. God put it together if it's there. Okay? So, cast that lie down. The other thing I tell you is, Oh, your kids are the only ones that are never going to act right. He'll tell you all kinds of things. Is this an opportunity where they could have done that? Mm-hmm. How do you fight all of that other stuff then? They were singing hymns and they were praising God. When you learn to worship, when you learn to praise God, more than just a positive outlook, I'm not talking about Zig Ziglar. I'm talking about you learn to reach out to God. You receive God in your situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a witness that must be to people around them. I wonder if it was. It was midnight. I bet everybody was just sleeping. They're there at the uh, Macedonian Inn. Nice, comfortable, big plush beds. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners were listening to them. They've been stripped, beaten, chained. But what's happening? Other people are watching. Sometimes the trial that you're going in in your life that feels like it is just breaking you apart and you can't do it is for the benefit not just of you, but those that are watching you. Just like Jonathan and the armor bearer were going up the mountain and they thought, I killed 20 men I did a great thing. No, the 20 men was insignificant. It was the people that were watching them that were drawn to act in faith. The fact that these guys withstood a beating, Buddhists do that. The fact that these guys were singing hymns, all kind of people, drunks in bars, sing. It was that they were doing this at a time that was God-ordained and people were watching them. See, you need to consider that your life is not about you. Christianity is outward focused, not inward focused. I'm losing my job and I don't know what to do. Maybe it's so that people around you will see how to have hope in despair. Well, I, my wife... In the, in the, in the, Stand up, be a real Christian. Maybe it'll encourage somebody else. Men in here, I'm telling you, we need men who will be Christians. Too long has the body of Christ been wimpy, washed back and forth, never standing up, doing something that is principled in being men. You women, you need to act like women in the Bible. You need to be ready to do God's will. Ready to support others who will do so. Not always looking for comfort and emotional stability. That needs to come from God. There were people listening to them. 
Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake. Isn't it amazing? Jonathan and the armor bearer go up. And because they did something in the natural, God blessed them in the supernatural. Earthquakes happened. Things happened that threw the enemy into confusion. Because these guys did something in the natural. While they were being beaten, they were praising. God did something in the supernatural. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At, at once all the prisoners' doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. He knew he was as good as dead. If the prisoners didn't kill him, then the Roman authorities above him would kill him for failing in his job. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. And they rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Did Paul see in a Macedonian vision a man? Would you ever have thought that Paul would have to be stripped beaten, chained naked, and be singing in the stocks so that God could give an earthquake that would open prison doors and provide a situation where a jailer would have the sentence of death in his heart and desire to be saved? Hmm. Only God's big enough to orchestrate something like that, but I guarantee you He had it in mind when when Paul saw the vision of a Macedonian man. I can almost prove to you, not from a literary sense, but just from a reason standpoint, that Paul knew that this was the Macedonian man when he laid eyes on him. You know why I know that? Because he looks around him and says, your whole family is going to get saved too. How could Paul have known that? Because Paul saw it in a vision. He knew it was going to happen. He just didn't know who the Macedonian was. Friends, what I'm trying to teach you, what I want you to get in your spirit is, number one, if you give God something to work with in the natural He will bless it in a supernatural fashion. If you head up the mountain, He'll provide the confusion in the camp that causes you to win. If you will praise in the midst of despair, He'll cause the earthquake that frees you from your jail cell. He will do whatever it takes to back your move because you're stepping out going, it's God and I'm trying. And when you draw near to Him, He draws near to you. If you will unite with brothers and Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, and you'll say, your goals are now my goals. I will help you. Not because you're helping me, I'll help you because I love you. And both of you have that attitude. Then you can accomplish together what you couldn't accomplish alone. If you do that and you unite in vision and you give God something to work with, then God's will comes to pass on the earth and His kingdom is advanced. It only happens though when we act like real Christians. Why aren't there more miracles? Why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? Be a real Christian and we will start to see it happen. If you are needing something from God and you're not seeing it, can we just go ahead and put the blame where it belongs and assume the problem's with you and not with God? Would that be okay? Okay. Let's stand up. Let's pray. And I want you to consider something. As we pray, I want you to consider taking a new stand with God today. That you are going to give Him something to work with by acting in the natural in your life. You say, well, I don't know what mountain I'm supposed to climb. Let's start by having some joy while you're being flogged. Let's start there. Let's start by learning to sing praises in the midst 
of adversity. And then let's see if God doesn't open prison doors in your life to show you that He's with you. You know, I'm not talking about money. I want you to understand that right up front. I'm not speaking about money here. But the Bible says when He's trying to encourage faith, test me in this matter. You give to me and I will open the windows of heaven for you. Now get the money out of your head. God is in a position where He's saying, show some faith. Show some faith and test me. See if I won't bless what you're doing. You know, I don't care whether it's cutting grass for somebody, whether it's putting your hand to the plow in some new venture, whatever it is, God is looking for an opportunity to build your trust in Him so that you can accomplish more for Him. He did not save you just because He wanted to save you. That's, that's a misnomer. He saved you so that you would work in His kingdom and bring salvation to others because He desires that all men would be saved. He planted a crop expecting to get a return on it. And if you were just sustaining in life, detached from everything else, not really caring about anything, you are not producing the fruit that you're supposed to. You can't sit on the back row in Christianity and be pleasing to Jesus. All of you have got to want to step up to the plate and hit the home run that wins the game. That's what He wants out of you. It's not wrong. It's not cocky. That is faith. 